shooting. Skimmer Way near Lakewood, Charles 478, Tango. Thank you for joining us on Inside EMS. Now the always entertaining Chris Zebalero and the Ted Nugent of EMS. Kelly well, ladies and gentlemen, it's Friday and it's time to go inside EMS. I'm your host, Chris Subalero, and with me always on the East Coast is our good friend Kelly Grayson. Kelly, how you doing? I'm good, man. I'm hanging out in scenic Austell, Georgia, site of the uh, Metro Atlanta EMS conference where I, I did, a, did a keynote talk this morning. It was good. And Kelly Grayson continues his world tour on the dominance of EMS education, doesn't he? <laughs> yeah. The Kelly Grayson World Tour. Now opening for corn. Kelly Grayson. That's right. Is, are there shirts for the Kelly Grayson World yeah, Tour? Yeah, we need shirts. We need shirts. When when they were letting me in the auditorium this morning, uh, you know, they give you your, your lanyard like everyone gets with your name tag. And and uh, the doorkeepers were rather zealous making sure that everyone had a, a name tag. So I was holding up my, my name tag like Wayne's World with the back, you know, Wayne and Garth with the backstage pass. We're with the band. We're with the band. That's right. That's funny. Good. Well, we got a lot of news to get to, man. Yeah. So why don't you go ahead and jump on it first, and uh, let's get a talking. We got a uh, we got a story out of uh, out of Nebraska, Lincoln, Nebraska. Uh, there is a bill before their legislature that would go into effect in January 2017, uh, allowing a, volu- a volunteer EMTs and firefighters a uh, $250 state tax credit. Uh, as an incentive to to get people to volunteer, you know, as you know, Nancy Nancy talks about uh that's her forte is volunteer EMS and and how to keep it viable and functioning and, and thinking outside the box and and this is the one of the things that she talks about is uh is uh, initiatives like this in Nebraska uh, where these people will get a get a a tax credit and get a little something back for the the uh, effort they put forth on on behalf of their communities. Um, they said it's uh, going to cost the state an estimated $2.2 million annually. And, of course, in, in Nebraska and Middle America and in the, the Midwest, you know, uh, those states are all very heavily reliant on volunteers. Uh, all those small towns uh, don't have the run volume to support a paid service, either fire or EMS, and they don't have the tax base to uh, – uh, they don't have the tax base to uh, – support it either um so if it were not for volunteers they they wouldn't have any fire suppression or ems so the the state has gone a little bit toward uh incentivizing those guys or at least showing them some appreciation with a 250 million dollar tax credit so i think that's a good thing it's not nowhere near enough uh but it's a step in the right direction yeah and and i i think when i saw this uh, when I saw this article, it was very, very interesting to read. And of course, when Kelly talks about Nancy, for those who don't know, Nancy McGee is an EMS One columnist as well as the significant other of our very own Kelly Grayson. That's a woman who is going right to heaven. There'll be my, no purgatory my, for her. My far better half. Exactly. Yeah. That's right. So you know, I was interested though. I mean, and this passed. This went. This was an eight zero mm-hmm. vote, and so it passed. Um, you know, unanimously. But, uh, you know, when I saw the $250 number, I'm like, really, is that the best I could have done? But then when you think about uh, $2.2 million annually, we got to think that that's, you know, accumulating to the bottom line. And uh, but as you mentioned, uh, you know, the realization was this is a great start. And but we really need to now start to think about, is it time to compensate 
volunteer firefighters for the time that they're in. And, yes. you know, we've talked with Nancy before on the show about billing and, and uh, you know, people getting the revenue and, you know, what's keeping that from happening, you know, uh, for our volunteer agencies to have to do fish fries and bake sales to put gas in their ambulances yeah. and their fire trucks. Um, we're, we're failing that community. And I, I got to tell you, man, I don't know what the answer is because we've been talking about volunteerism now for almost, uh, you know, 30 years and mm -hmm. we're still in the same spot that we've always been. You know, and, and, and as she points out, everyone says that, you know, volunteer EMS is, is dying. Um, and, uh, the reality is, is most of the 911 calls in our country are still answered by volunteers. Um, uh, especially in, in rural America. Uh, and there is no effective uh, alternative to volunteer EMS. Um, so whether it's dying or not, she doesn't believe so, and, and, and I'm coming to agree with her. Uh, whether it's dying or not, it needs some aid. And, and her, her take on it is, is it, it needs to shift to a, a community nonprofit uh, staffed by volunteer labor and, and a hybrid paid uh, volunteer model is probably the way to go. How would that work? Um, but, How would that work? Uh, you would have, uh, it, it depends on, on the staffing and, and the response level, uh, how many people you have in your squad. If you're having recruiting and retention problems, first of all, you need to lobby effectively, know how to lobby your state and, and local uh, lawmakers for support. You shouldn't have to be holding fish fries and bake sales to put gas in your ambulance or to buy equipment. Uh, we need to make the point that EMS is indeed an essential service and it needs to be funded to some extent to, to, it, to the extent that the tax base will allow. And often uh, it is not funded. We're an afterthought. So, you know, we need to, to lobby lawmakers and, and, uh, and city councils and everything to, to give us uh, more money. And it's really not that much money. Uh, she uses, I'm not going to steal her thunder, but, but she, she talks a very good, uh, thought provoking, uh, argument on that, on how little it actually costs each household. And it's, it's a crazy low number per year, um, to, to fund an EMS system. Um, but uh, she threw some numbers out here in, in talking about this article, uh, Lawmakers considered a $500 tax credit for volunteer firefighters in 2013, but the bill died in committee. So it was resurrected as a $250 tax credit, and it's going to cost the entire state of Nebraska an estimated $2.2 million annually. Ooh, let me tell you, $40 million compared to $2.2 million. That's your number comparison. $40 million is the estimated savings in labor costs in Nebraska for volunteer firefighters and EMTs. That is how much the state is saving by those people dedicating their time and effort to give back to their community. Right. 40 million bucks they would be spending otherwise. And they act like 2.2 million is a, is a, a magnanimous gesture. I think it's about a $10 million too little. Uh, but as you mentioned, though, as you mentioned, it's, it's a it's, start. It's a, yeah. it's a great start, and and I applaud Nebraska for doing that. More st more states need to uh, to get on board and start supporting their volunteers. Uh, those states that still rely on a significant number of volunteers, um, but uh, in, in the the paid the hybrid systems, those systems that are are, are you know starving for uh, for personnel, uh, you'd make you'd fill the gaps with paid personnel. 
and as your recruiting and retention improves and you get more volunteer personnel, well, then you, then, you know, you have to less of the, the shifts will be covered by paid staff. But bottom line is you got to be able to respond. And if you have to respond early on with some paid people in, in volunteer slots, you do so until you can, you can get your squad back on its feet uh, and go back to a full volunteer squad if that's what your community supports. If not, then they're going to have to pay for EMS. And that's what she, she talks about. Makes a good argument for it. Maybe what oh. we should do is uh, let's get her on as a guest yeah. again. Yeah, and, we need uh, to have her back on. I, I'm sure you can get in touch with her, so I'm sure that's not difficult. Hey, babe, you want to be back on the, on the podcast? Yeah. yeah okay. Yes. Well, let's work it out. Let's I'll go have her people to, talk to my people. Yeah, and then we'll do lunch. That's right. Yeah. So my story, and my story goes back a little bit ways to February 24th, and it was one of the things that we hadn't had the opportunity to get to, and I, I wanted to have the opportunity to talk about it because it's something that you and I have uh, debated about, and this goes to Greenfield, Wisconsin, where EMS department had cut back on lights and sirens. And, and you and I have discussed the lights and sirens when it comes to transport. And uh, you and I both feel that we can handle whatever it is that needs to be handled in the back of the ambulance. Mm -hmm. And if there's anything that definitive care needs to do that we can't get, um, that we can do in the back of that ambulance, we go ahead and fire it up and we put those lights on and, 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 uh, you know, now we head to the hospital with that diesel bolus as we talk yeah. about, but what they're talking about here is, is they're saying that there are 12,000 emergency vehicle crashes on the way to emergencies every year. And now they're kind of looking at the thought of, do they not have lights and sirens responses to scenes? And I got to tell you, man, I think I have a little bit of a challenge with that because you and I have been on the end of calls that were a fall come to find out they're in cardiac arrest. And we walk in, you know, ready to work a fall, and they're in cardiac arrest. Now, if we're not going lights and sirens and we're traveling at the, the, you know, the speed of the traffic, is that now going to endanger patient care? I mean, there are a lot of calls, to, and those calls, let's be honest, those calls, Kelly, are, are very few and far between. Yeah. But do we know what's on the other end of the call? on the other end of the phone when we get dispatched to a call and are we making the right decision to say, maybe we just stop responding to lights and sirens and whenever we get there, we get there. Now the yeah. counter argument is going to, uh, is going to be hopefully that our first responder agencies are on scene in four or five minutes. So definitive care should be able to be there very, very quickly, but stop the clock. Yeah. Exactly. Well, you know, I'm not even sure it's stopping the clock. You know, stopping the clock is really a, 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 a you know, a logistical organizational thing for contractual mm -hmm. compliance. And, um, but really what we need to talk about, and we really need to worry about, we really need to stop talking about, you know, the eight minute and 59 second response time yes. and stopping the clock, but that's a whole other discussion. But really, I think that the challenge is, do we really need to take this out of the components of our toolbox of responding lights and sirens, mm -hmm. knowing that we could be, uh, you know, there could be a, a dead child at the other end yeah. of if we don't get yeah. there in time? That's true. Well, you know, part of the problem is, is lack of data. We really don't know what optimal response time is. We've got data on one, and that's cardiac arrest. We know that a response time of four minutes or less for cardiac arrest is, is optimal. Um, and if you can't make that on a regular basis, then you might as well be like the cable guy and come next Tuesday between the hours of noon and 5 p.m. Um, 
And most, truthfully, my opinion is most EMS calls can be handled that way, just like dispatching your cable guy. I, that's a bit of hyperbole, but but the point is, but is a future, but a, of, but a future for community paramedicine, right there. Yes, <laughs> yes, it is. I didn't mean uh, to cut you off. Go ahead. No, but uh, you know, most of our people don't need emergent response. Uh, they don't need emergent transport. Um, however, uh, it only takes one to have a bad outcome. Uh, so it's incumbent on when, when we talk about responses, uh, cutting down on lights and sirens responses, then the issue then becomes, can we triage these calls effectively to limit uh, the, the amount of under triage? Uh, so that we're actually dispatching in appropriate fashion to the to the right kind of calls, um, and I don't know that such a system exists right now. You know, MPDS has a has a, a triage, you know, phone triage system, and and purports to to be able to triage those calls effectively. Whether it actually does or not is a is a subject for another debate. But even as as detailed uh, and well thought out as MPDS purports to be, it still misses a bunch of stuff. Um, so I don't know that the dispatch, the triage solution is, is, exists yet to be able to make this as safe as, as they hope it will be. Now, you know, once we're on the scene, uh, you're probably just like me in this regard that, you know, my opinion has always been the, the emergency ends when I arrive on scene. Right. Uh, and the better I do my job, the less exciting it is and the less likely I have uh, to do lights and siren transport. Right. That's, you know, cutting back on that phase of response is, is far less problematic than the initial phase when the only information we have is, is over a phone via a panicked 911 caller. So, I, you know, I wish the, the town of Greenfield uh, luck and hopefully we'll have some you know, in the in the coming years, they'll they'll have some data that we can pull from. Maybe they, uh, you know, maybe they wind up being a, a model for other systems to emulate, uh, and maybe they wind up a cautionary tale. Um, time will tell, I suppose. Right, right. What do you got for us next? We've got a. Uh, I just saw this. Boston is there's a nonprofit in Boston uh, is going to test a new way of addressing addressing the city's heroin epidemic. Um, there was a uh, stretch of road in Boston that they called the Methadone Mile, um, where they're going to offer heroin users a safe room to ride out their highs, complete with a nurse on site to administer medical care if needed. Um, Chris, I just wonder, at what point are we going to just say, we've lost the war on drugs, we capitulate, we surrender, let's try to regulate it and stop fighting it? Because this wow. is the way we're... Wow, that's, you know, that's a question, Kelly. <laughs> this is the way we're going. You know, we've we've gone from from naloxone being a a uh, uh, medical professional only intervention, a paramedic intervention, to making it a BLS intervention, to making it a a layperson intervention, to now in New York State, non uh, affiliated pharmacies, independent pharmacies, are selling it over the counter to whoever who wants it. Um, and now we're actually giving people in Boston, at least, is giving people safe spaces to get high on an illegal substance, okay? So, you know, how many billions upon billions of dollars do we waste every year fighting a losing battle against drugs? How many, how many people, I'm not saying that I'm for legalization, but there's got to be a better way of doing things 
than this and and than the way we've done it and imprisoning uh, far more people than the rest of the world. We lead the the world in prison population, and it's for drug offenses. You know, I can't help but imagine how much more our military would be capable if we legalized drugs uh, and devoted some of that money spent on interdiction to counseling and rehab and to social services, take care, better care of our veterans and maybe fund our military a little better um, and, and other things. What do you think? Man, I got to tell you, I mean, there are just so many, so many different ways to go into this conversation that I don't even know where to start. But it's the return of the opium den, man. That's right, man. But, you know, (laughs) one of the things that I think we have to look at when I first read this story, it really kind of raised an eyebrow. And I was like, what the heck are these people thinking? But then I think when we go back to the era of when we were giving clean needles to heroin users to bring down the... um, Mm -hmm bring down AIDS, you know, the, how many people were catching AIDS from sharing needles. Well, that worked. Now everybody was up in arms when they said, Oh my God, what are these people doing? They're just supporting the drug trade, but that worked. People weren't dying of AIDS as much as they were because they were sharing needles. Now, when we talk about Narcan and and giving it out over the counter, you know, is that the right thing to do? Well, you and I have talked about it on the show and we've kind of hemmed and hawed and gone back and forth and said, no, it's not. Yes, it is. And, you know, but if anybody is going to, uh, you know, be able to use that drug to save their life, do we really say that they don't have the right to do that? You know, I think in EMS, we take the, you know, we take an attitude, a, a very attitudinal approach to drug users. And, is that you a know, civil heroism? Attitudinal? You don't like that one? <laughs> we have... <laughs> We have a very big attitude when it comes to heroin users, <laughs> yeah. and we use Narcan as a punishment more than mm-hmm. we do as a treatment. And, yep. you know, people will say, you know, go ahead and use it as you're going up the ramp of the, you know, the hospital and let them, let it be the, you know, let it be the hospital's worry. But now with what people are saying here is that we have people in our community are dying and mm-hmm. we can't help them. So you know what? Maybe what we do is is we give them a place where they can come and they can do what they're doing, and we can have somebody just kind of keep an eye on them so our kids, so our daughters, so our sons aren't dying. And I got to tell you, man, I don't know that I have heartburn over this. I think that what we're trying to do is we are trying to win a war on drugs and a war that you mentioned is is not, uh, you know, it's the Vietnam of the United States all over again because I think it's yeah. a war that we're not winning. But yeah. secondarily, if we're not winning it, does that mean that we just throw up our hands and say everybody who wants to use heroin should die? Or do yeah. we say, let's go ahead and find a way until we can until we can put our, you know, until we could put our fork into this steak and fix it, let's make sure that we just cook it the right way. And I gotta tell you, I don't know. I don't I don't really know how I feel about it. You know, I think it's it's sending the wrong message. But on the other side of it, what if that's somebody that we know who's there who's now getting ready uh-huh. to die because of an overdose and this nurse saves them with Narcan? Where do you flip the coin and say right and wrong, Kelly? I I don't know. I, I do know that um, it is very easy to condemn someone for their lifestyle choices and, and uh, their drug use uh, when drug use is still a, a fairly uncommon thing. You know, uh, what do you mean? If lepers, what do you mean a drug use is 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 a fairly if, uncommon if, if, thing? When it was when it when it was a fairly uncommon thing. Uh, I'd liken it to this. You know, I mean, lepers are 
are we're outcasts of society. But boy, when lepers make up 20, 30 percent of the population, uh, you can't very well treat them that way because they're a big segment of society, and and they become they come to to represent uh, you know society as a whole. Uh, and when drug use is so commonplace now, as we're seeing, uh, that the use is, is, is skyrocketing and, and more and more people um, are, are using drugs and, and overdosing on them, uh, it's a lot harder to make value judgments. You know, uh, when it was the crack epidemic, white people could say, oh, it's a black person dis- disease. You know, that happened in the inner cities. And then along came meth. You know, and, and then uh, uh, meth was uh, crack for white people. <laughs> you know, it's easy to to label a drug user as other uh, or or an outcast and someone that that you would never be uh, until you start seeing uh, people that look and act just like you and have all the same advantages in life that you do, who are still hooked on this drug, just the same as those low life scum that you you. you presumed to judge for their their poor life choices. So I think as it becomes more commonplace, uh, our our take on it and and our view of drug use uh, has rightfully shifted away from a, a social ill and a scourge to a legitimate healthcare problem that we need to address medically. Right. Um, and we need to shift away from it being a crime to being a uh, to being a, a public health issue that we need to address. I. I don't know that I will I advocate blanket legalization of drugs, um, but it's painfully obvious that what we've done thus far has not worked, not one little bit, and it's cost us trillions and trillions of dollars. You know, you, you got to start looking at, boy, what happened to Colorado when they legalized marijuana? Uh, I don't, you know, Colorado hasn't descended into a den of, of vice and iniquity with a bunch of weed heads playing Xbox all day long. If anything, you know, Cheetos stock has skyrocketed, but, but that's, that's really it, you know, and they've got a lot more money in their state coffers. Billions, billions. Yeah, I mean, they, I was just reading an article on that. I was just reading you know? an article on that and the money is hand over fist when it comes. Yeah. But, you know, one of the things that I think we have to change, you know, you and I have been very vocal when it comes mm-hmm. to changing the stigma of, uh, you know, depression and, and stress yeah. in, in our career field. But I think this is another one as well. I mean, we just take so much disregard when it comes to people who are hooked on drugs and we really forget that there are people under there that are now that are now uh, addicted to a substance that until they realize that it's ruined their life. And you think about the ego and you think about, you know, I can control this and this is okay and I can stop at any time and, mm-hmm. you know, you start stealing, whatever it is, man, but, you know... We pass judgment in the sense of what people have taken to get their their uh, escape from their day. Now, in EMS, there's a lot of people who are smoking. There's a lot of people who drink and get drunk and, and uh, um, you know, have challenges with that. There are people in our career field, I'm sure, who are out there who are smoking weed every day, and they're just waiting for the urinalysis to get caught. Yeah. We're passing judgment on somebody because they decided to stick a needle in their arm. Now, again, I will give you their decision to stick a needle in their arm was theirs. Yep. You but have once, to own. exactly. But once they get, once they do that, it's almost the very first time you now yeah. become addicted to that drug. Choice, choice tends to go out of the window. Exactly. And addiction itself is a mental illness, and some people we're we're finding are are 
probably genetically predisposed to addictive personalities. There, there is a component there that that uh, we may not be able to to uh, control. Maybe encoded in our our genome uh, that some of us uh, are prone to addictive behaviors, whatever that may be. Gambling, uh, extreme sports, adrenaline rushes, however you get your rush. And some people tend to do it with illicit substances. And yes, the the choice to stick a needle in your arm or to snort or smoke whatever illicit substance was your choice. And I don't think you you can divorce personal responsibility from the equation. But at some point... It's no longer in their control, and they need help, and they need our compassion. Hey, so. Kelly, let me ask you a question. Is the, is the problem here that we're looking at it as a drug problem instead of looking at it as a people problem? Uh, yeah. Yeah, I think so. Uh, it's, it's the same way as, as um, you know, I'm a big Second Amendment advocate. I, I think we, we uh, and uh, anti-gunners look at the, the gun as the evil when – uh, there's a moral decay that's the evil and the gun just happens to be the tool. Uh, and we're looking at drugs in the same way. Drugs are the evil. No, drugs are just what they happen to use to fix what's broken. And, and we need to, if we're going to re- reduce their reliance on drugs, we have to start addressing what is broken in people uh, and work on fixing that so that the drugs don't become necessary. I got one last study we can wrap it up, or one last story we can wrap it up with. Uh, this one comes out of Fort Detrick, Maryland. Uh, the Army is is equipping their combat medics with junctional tourniquets. Uh, if you're not familiar with junctional tourniquets, basically they're a tourniquet with uh, inflatable air bladders. Just think of them as a, a mini mass trousers. Instead of trousers, it's just a, uh, a cuff and a band. Um, but they're specifically designed for gunshot wounds in those hard-to-reach places uh, like the groin or armpit that limb tourniquets like the combat action tourniquet and the, the special operations forces tourniquets uh, uh, can't reach. Uh, so they're they're more effective at these proximal wounds, and it strikes me that that uh, we're starting to see um, the I, I want to we're starting to see uh, some some genuinely uh, exciting changes in wound care and and, and trauma care, um, and it's turning what we learned as EMTs on its ear. You know what what were we taught as EMTs, Chris? Junctions. I mean, uh, we were taught. Tourniquets are a last resort, you know, only, right. only, only put it on. Uh, and oh my God, it's, it's, uh, you're you know, giving up, you're giving the, up the limb for the life. Yeah, that's right. Don't ever do that. Um, and all of that was based on anecdote and, and very poor evidence that, that dates as far back as the Crimean war. And that's what we were basing our, our bias against tourniquets on. And, and now, uh, in those, those great big trauma labs that the Iraq and Afghanistan wars have become, uh, we have learned that uh, tourniquets are not bad things. And not only are they not bad things, but um, we're, we're getting newer and better tourniquets because of it. So be interesting to see how quickly uh, junctional tourniquets kind of trickle down to, uh, to uh, civilian EMS. I, I know that I used uh, my, uh, my cat tourniquet yesterday uh, or day before yesterday, um, for the first time in five or six months, I, I had to put a tourniquet on someone. But had I not had one, uh, it would have been difficult to uh, 
control the bleeding in this gentleman. Um, and God knows his improvised tourniquets weren't doing the job. Right. But the cat cut it right off, man. Just, but here's uh, the problem. Here's the problem with that, though. The problem with that is the guy had a bleed on his forehead, and you put the uh, tourniquet around his neck. Well, yeah. But, so, but I put a C-collar on. Oh, so did you? Okay. On, I, I yeah, apologize. I didn't know that. You know. Uh, but, you and, know, here's uh, the thing, though, we talked about that there are a lot of things that happened in the war. And if there's anything good that comes out of the war for EMS, it's the fact that there's going to be a lot of these devices now that are trickling down into EMS that we're going to be able to use. I mean, how long did we, I don't know if you and I talked about it, but I mean, the medics in the field were using duct tape to close wounds, you know, just oh, a yeah. quick way to. So is this something now that we're going to start to look at? But, I, you know, I I, you know, I think that the innovations that the, those combat medics used, and now that we start mm-hmm. to see these, uh, now that we start to see these in our present day, you know, I, I think it's 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 something that we really have to embrace because, and you and I talk about it all the time about the dogma of EMS and and what people mm-hmm. believe. You know, we're we're say, we're hearing back in the day, you know, if you put a tourniquet on somebody, you know, they're going to lose their limb uh, to save their life. But that goes back to the, you know, to the 60s and 70s where people Mm -hmm. didn't know how to fix that recirculation. And so as this now, as medicine has now evolved over the decades, it's not the life sentence or it's not the limb sentence that they expected it to be back in the day. But it just goes back to the fact, Kelly, that there's just so much that we do and so much that we need to do that we don't have good data on. That we just do it because somebody said to do it and we're just following along to do. So I have, I have long said, and I, I still have this position that that uh, EMS is has a bad habit of trying to fix a training deficit with a doodad, uh, and device manufacturers know their target market very well, uh, and and they know that we're suckers for cool toys. I just love um, that. We're not you, suckers. You, you just use your mouth so purdy. I mean, you <laughs> yeah. just talk so purdy, man. Yeah, all right. I'm like Hedley Lamar. My mind is a raging torrent. That's right. <laughs> raging torrent cascading into a, a waterfall of, of creative alternatives. Oh, Mr. Uh, Lamar. You know, so if you don't know what Kelly's talking about, he's talking about Blazing Saddles. And if you've not watched Blazing Saddles, it came out in 1974. And for 1974, it was a great movie. But anyway. Um, anyway, it's... You know, and, and you go to any conference, go to this one today uh, that I'm attending, and there will be device manufacturers selling you things of questionable benefit. But some of these things that you start to uh, – you have to be a, a wise consumer and, and do your homework. Some of these things that I initially scoffed at actually have some merit. You know, I, I the that wound – Xstat wound syringe that injects the chitosan sponges into a, a wound cavity. Right, right, right. Things like wound packing with uh, quick clot combat gauze and the, the IT clamp. You know, it's like a, a – I love that IT clamp, man. That IT yeah, clamp is like, cool as hell. It's like a hair hair clip with fangs. Exactly, yeah. Um, but a chip it actually clip, works. A chip clip. Yeah, a chip clip with fangs. But it actually works. And right. – and, and, and the the reasoning behind it is sound, and, and these people have some some fairly robust, some more robust than others, uh, data to back up uh, their the manufacturer's claims. So, right. and the um, IT clamp I'm came from the shift- battlefield. The IT clamp came yeah. off the battlefield. It was developed by a Canadian my, trauma uh, surgeon. Yeah. yeah, I'm kind of shifting my my thinking on some of these doodads. I still think that. We're we're all about what we can do, not what we know. So as a result, we we tend to, you know, lean toward not less classroom and more toys, and we need to get away from that. But that doesn't uh, 
that doesn't uh, or that does not mean that uh, some of these toys don't have their uses. Right. Well, Kelly, before yeah, we uh, but, get to close, I, I do sorry. want to make a comment. Uh, you know, we are still working on getting um, the show that we're going to talk about restraints. But I do want to send a thank you to Boston EMS and uh, Nicholas Mutter. He went ahead and sent us Boston EMS's policy, and it is very, very uh, thorough. And when we get the uh, – so I want to thank you for doing that, Nick. I appreciate you uh, sending that to the show. And as soon as we um, get that show scheduled, maybe we'll reach out to Nick and see if we can have him join us as well yeah. to talk about this because uh, you know it was something that you and I kind of touched on mm-hmm. and um, – yeah, I think it'll be great to talk about when the time comes. But with that said, Kelly, let's go ahead and get back to the rest of our day and uh, give the closing. That's uh, We'd like to hear what you think about the uh, news items we discussed today. So give us your concerns, comments, questions, suggestions at the show at ems1.com. And for myself and co-host Chris Ceballero, this is Kelly Grayson signing off from the Metro Atlanta EMS Conference in Austell, Georgia. Don't forget to rate us on iTunes, and thanks for tuning in to Inside EMS. We'll catch you guys next week.